This morning is November 7th, a Sunday morning. Our message this morning will be called Wonderful Counselor. Uh, David and I were chatting about a song during worship uh, that the punchline or the uh, chorus line is Wonderful Counselor, the everlasting God, uh, or the mighty God, everlasting Father. comes right out of Isaiah. Is that it? Yeah, it's I Lay in Zion. We couldn't remember the title. We would have done it in worship if we had. Uh, a couple thoughts as we get into this message. During a period of enlightenment after the Renaissance age, in places like France and the higher centers of learning in Europe, there, there became uh, a birthing of this idea of higher criticism, that the Scripture should be subject to more scrutiny than it had been given. Perhaps not all of it is right and we need to look at it in a more intellectual context. This really encouraged atheistic thought around the world. Uh, it tried to take the Bible and lower it to a standard that was like a book among many books. Um, one of the most profound things that I think that I ever read, in the early 1800s, and for the life of me I couldn't remember this morning the man's name, but a very famous free thinker, a famous uh, secularist of the time, who began studying the Scripture as challenged by somebody to prove it wrong and became a champion of the faith. And I'll probably think of his name at some point during this service. He said that the turning point, when you read his memoirs, the turning point in his life was on a Sunday morning. He was on his way somewhere and, and not church. And he saw a little girl who was uh, waiting on a street corner. And this was before the industrial age, so she wasn't waiting for a bus, but she was waiting for some mode of transportation. And I get the impression from reading she's probably about Judah's age, uh, so somewhere around seven or eight. And uh, he says, well, what are you doing, little girl? She says, I'm on my way to church. And in the height of his intellectual arrogance, he is kind of making sport of this little girl. And he's writing about this. He says, oh, really? So tell me, little girl, is your God a big God or a little God? He write, would write later, some 30 years later, that her answer from this little girl so... Uh, caused him so, so much difficulty that he couldn't sleep, that it began to eat away at him until he began to go study the Word to find out just how wrong it was. So the little girl looked at him and said, well, he's both. He's big enough that all the universe can't contain him and he's small enough that he lives in my heart. Now, that is something that is so common to us. You know, we hear that kind of churchy phraseology all of the time. But to this guy, it was the first time he had ever heard that and it was from a little girl and he thought it was profound. And God used that as a seed that grew in the guy's heart until he became born again. I say that to encourage you as we get into this message. And this message this morning is solely for the purpose of encouragement. There are a lot of times we teach. We do that a lot on Wednesday nights. There are sometimes I even use this like a bully pulpit. You may feel kind of beat down when you leave because we're trying to bring about change in our lives. The change that I want to bring about this morning is a proper perspective want us to see ourselves like God does. I want us to understand what we have in the kingdom. So it's going to hopefully be encouraging. But the reason that I shared that story is something that's been weighing heavily on me is we forget we're not normal people. As Christians, we're not just regular average Joes going about a mundane existence. Our lives have meaning and they have purpose. And you don't need a book that becomes a bestseller in the last few years to tell you that. You don't need to be told you have a purpose-driven life. The Bible teaches us that each one of us are God's workmanship, His craftsmanship, as if you were a special project that He was making for one purpose, that you would do the work that He prepared in advance for you to do. That little girl had no idea. She was on her way to church. She just gave the best answer to somebody who asked, not knowing who He was. And that was part of God doing His work. Jesus one time said, and we may read it today, in John 14, He said, Guys, you don't know who I am. You, you still, after all this time, you, you don't understand? He said, when I speak, it's not me speaking. It's the Father who lives in me. And that is, he, or he is, the Father is, doing His work. In other words, as we speak, as we are led by God and we share things with people, not just Bible things, share things about your life, God's work is being advanced on earth. You're not regular people. You're soldiers in the kingdom. I don't mean soldiers in a militant way. I mean you're somebody who's under command of a king, who is your life is led by what uh, he's led by. That makes you special. The Bible goes so far in Psalm 82 as to call you gods. 
And he said, wow, that's weird. That's a New Agey thought. No, it's something that New Age religions have perverted. When the Bible calls you a god, it means a chip off of the bigger block. Not that you're a deity in and of yourself, but that you're just like God. No different than somebody would say, oh boy, that, that boy's Eric's son. Uh, isn't he a chip off the old block? Yeah, that's exactly the sense that it's meant in. But this morning's message is wonderful counselor. When you think of a counselor, what comes to mind? Anybody? You? A lawyer. There's one. Somebody with wise advice. Anything else? Those are two of the meanings of counselor. There's a third. Anybody ever been to day camp? What do you have at day camp? So a counselor, uh, our modern dictionaries, defines as a person who counsels or gives advice. That's what Steve said. Uh, an attorney or especially a trial lawyer. That's what Darnell said. And then Cassidy came up with a person who supervises young people at a summer camp. So what does it mean when the Bible uses the word wonderful counselor? Let's turn to Isaiah real quick. Or you can turn slowly. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> uh, Isaiah's not far from the middle of your Bible. If you open the middle of your Bible, you'll be in Psalms, and then you'll want to hang a right from there. We're going to be in Isaiah 9 this morning. Topic being wonderful counselor. One of the things that I love about this faith that we have, whether you talk about its earliest Hebraic roots in Judaism or the expression of it in basically Gentile Christianity that we see now, something pervades the Bible. It, it permeates it throughout and it should permeate Christians' lives as well. The book of James teaches us this at just point blank and you see it in other places too is that in Christians' lives, mercy triumphs over judgment. The reason that is so encouraging to me is there are so many times in my life, not just from God, from other people, I deserve judgment. But God causes mercy to reign and triumph over the judgment. If this morning during worship or any other time during the day, you begin to think of the things that you don't necessarily have right in your life, and you start to feel a distance between you and God because of that, or between you and other Christians because of it, you can relax a little bit. Not in that you don't have to be holy, you do. But the Bible teaches that God's mercy is greater than His judgment, and that His mercy will triumph over judgment. He goes so far, and we'll get to this in just a little while, as to pour Himself into you. None of you were perfect when that happened. I certainly wasn't. But he doesn't desert you every time you screw up. You know, we kind of get into a habit of bad thinking. Something doesn't go right, and you think, well, I blew it there, I might as well. And your life kind of goes to hell in a handbasket. If God threw you away every time you did something wrong, he wouldn't have any people on the earth. You know, we've studied the topic of unlikely servants one time. Because when you look at the men's lives in the Bible and women's lives in the Bible, they're the most unlikely of people. You know, in the lineage of Jesus, we've got a couple rapes, we have a couple prostitutes, we have uh, people who did abominable things, and they're in the lineage of Jesus. Among those apostles and those prophets and those great mighty anointed people in the Bible, we have people who did such things as kill somebody's husband so you could sleep with the wife, you know, who stole things, who hid things, who lied, did all kinds of things. So we shouldn't be so surprised with one another when we see something that's not quite right. It's been going on that way for some 6,000 years now. God takes ordinary people, ordinary meaning that we're flawed, and does extraordinary things with us. Wednesday night in John, we're going to be in the second chapter, and that will be one of the themes. God takes the ordinary and does extraordinary things with it. He didn't choose you because you were perfect. He chose you because you were pretty screwed up and you needed His help, and you admitted that. The problem with the world is they walk around with their arms crossed thinking they have no need of God's help. What makes us different is we fully acknowledge we're totally dependent upon His help. Don't let that change as you feel His uh, energy working in you as you become a Christian. There's never a point at which you become perfect. You're always totally dependent upon His grace and you strive for perfection. Go in Isaiah 9. In the Thompson chain, this is on page 766. We're going to start in the first verse. It says, Nevertheless... There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. I have a map in here. Uh, it's on that 
that back corner. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali is the uh, northern section of Israel around the Sea of Galilee in the center of that map. This is quoted of Jesus when he was born, that he was born in that area. Uh, The prophets and apostles understood from the scripture that this was speaking, this great light shining in the darkness of the time when Jesus was born and uh, raised in that area. You remember that the book of John opens up with uh, this light or this life was the light of men and it shined in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The first place that it began to shine was there. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. As in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle And every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, for fuel, for the fire. Why? Because for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Think about just some general themes that come from that scripture. It's as profound as could be. Isaiah lived 740 years before Jesus. 2740 years ago he lived. And he wrote about a time when a child would be born for the purpose of removing a rod of oppression from you, taking it upon himself and creating a kingdom like David's kingdom where all the enemies of God were put under his feet and this kingdom would last forever. This is why early in the book of John that we're studying, obviously on Wednesdays, they were looking for a king and they began to call Jesus the king. Everybody was waiting for this heavy yoke to be removed from their shoulders. You ever felt like you had the weight of the world pulling at you? Now, the first time you ever see this in the Bible is with the first two young boys that were born. Who were they? Judah, who were the first two boys born in the Bible? We got Cain and Abel. And how do you know that the weight of the world was pulling at Cain? God looks at him and he says, Cain, why is your face so downcast? One of the problems that you see in Christianity is that the Bible declares, Matt sang about it this morning, I lay me down. I lift you up. And now freedom is the song of my life. But people that are in Christ don't always walk around with a feeling of freedom. The world is supposed to be yoked with a heavy feeling. We'll read later, the Holy Spirit is there for the purpose of convicting the world of guilt and of sin. There is a heavy burden laid upon people. You see it expressed in all kinds of ways. That's why some drink. That's why some... Uh, buy excessive things. It's why some eat too much. It's why all of those things. And sometimes, it's why people just aren't happy. The first place the weight of the world begins to pull at a person is the corners of their mouth. You know? You can see it. When people drive down the highway in Houston, and when you look around you, you don't see happy people. You know? When you examine the people that are around you, and one reason the car is such a neat place to do this is have you noticed people will do things in an automobile that they would never do in a crowd? You're in a crowd, there's people all around you, but they feel safe in the confines of their car, like they're in their own little home. The sweet little old grandma that says hello to you at the grocery store will flip you off in traffic. You know, People do horrible things because they feel safe, the same way they do on a phone. You'll say things to the telemarketer when you hang up on him that you'd never say to your neighbor, right? Could be your neighbor calling, you don't know it. But we... You, when you look around in that area, you don't see people that are just full of life and full of joy, smiling and happy all the time. And that's because there's a heavy burden laid upon mankind. You know when it started? It started with the first sin and man realized he was going to be mortal because of this. I noticed that young men don't think much about dying. Judas never really spent an awful lot of time thinking about dying. Ah, uh, I'm still a relatively young man. The thought rarely crosses my mind. 
But probably the number one thing that drives the sale of newspapers and people that are 60 and above is because they want to read the obituaries. Why is that? Why? I mean, why? Why do people as they get older get more concerned with dying? They're beginning to see the effects of sin on the world displayed in them personally. And that heavy yoke begins to get laid on their shoulders. They, get, they start to get worried about the way that they'll die. Will it be painful? Will it not be painful? About their friends that are dying. About all of those things. And it's, it's strange. I now live long enough to see in close friends and relatives that transformations start to occur where they begin to get concerned about that. If it's not that and, and you don't see that in uh, aged people, age is probably not a great word for that, and people that are more mature, you see it displayed in other people's lives. The consequences of sin uh, weighing heavy on their shoulders. Unhappy people. Do you know we live in a time now where people are taking more antidepressants than in any age ever before? I'm not against antidepressants. I don't think they work, but I'm not, I'm not against them. I'm in a business where people prescribe that. And occasionally it does. But you know what? It's not producing the relief of the, the yoke of burden that it's supposed to. In fact, now they're issuing FDA warnings that it increases the risk of suicide, especially in, in kids. What the world's solution for this yoke problem is not working. If anything, it masks it for a short time only to reveal a heavier burden. Now, even if you were taking medicine, I'm not against medicine. If I have a headache, I take Tylenol, okay? I, I pray for healing, and then if I have the means to do something about it, I do that too. Uh, I'm certainly not teaching against doctors or anything. I'm telling you that the world is heavy with a weight. And God prescribed something for that. One among many things that we're going to talk about this morning, one among many that He's prescribed, is a wonderful counselor. See, when you have problems in life, when, when you are uh, a young couple and you're having your first baby, it's not uncommon for that young couple to run to others that have had babies and ask for help, counsel. When a couple's getting married, it's not uncommon for that couple to spend time with others that have been married and receive counsel, right? Now, this counsel is not so much to teach you, to give you a, a, a list of things. Now, this is the manual on how to raise children. Has anybody ever seen one of those? I, I haven't, and the ones that they write are usually written by people without kids. <laughs> Les is holding up the right manual. How about marriage? You know, when you were married, somebody didn't hand you a, a how-to manual on how to get along with your spouse and every time, right? But you went to other people for counsel, for encouragement. There are times in people's lives when they face uh, marital problems and they run to a counselor. There are times when they face economic problems and they run to a counselor. There are times when we face problems of every kind and we run to a counselor. As Christians in the kingdom, I don't want you to forget something. And I'm not telling you, don't seek the advice of counselors. Uh, be careful who you receive counsel from. I'm telling you that God did something special. Isaiah 9 is the first place the word counselor appears speaking of a good counselor. All of the others are defective ones. Guys like Ahithophel that caused a kingdom to go into conspiracy. This one is of a counselor that God gave all of His people. And He's wonderful, the Bible says. If there is a wonderful counselor that you don't have to pay, how many people have ever in here had a lawyer on retainer? Yeah, I figured. I, I figured. <laughs> four, four, four different families in here have had a lawyer on retainer in their life. That costs a lot of money, doesn't it? That's yeah. a psychological counselor. Every year. <laughs> okay. We had a lot of uh, of people that have paid money to have a counselor on retainer. Now, I understand that. It's necessary at times. Somebody's suing you, it's a good idea to get a lawyer, and I don't always recommend a Christian lawyer. <laughs> you know? Choose him based on his skill. <laughs> you know, uh, If I'm going to use an axe to cut down a tree, I'm not looking for a godly axe necessary. I'm looking for the axe that's the sharpest. <laughs> now, that's a side note. But, <laughs> but what, I, what I'm trying to say is you have expended something to have a counselor at your disposal. The Bible provides you with a counselor that he says is wonderful. He is the Prince of Peace. What else does it say about him? He's um, a mighty God. Now, Isaiah had a son, y'all. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this. Isaiah had children. This is around the time when Isaiah had a son. 
Do you think anybody was confused and thought that this might be Isaiah's son, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor? Probably not. You know, if they did think that it might be about his birth, they quickly found out that it was not. This son that was prophesied about was Jesus. He was a wonderful counselor. Turn with me to the book of John. So Jesus is a counselor. Would everybody agree with that? When you think about this counselor, though, In what way is Jesus a counselor? There's three kinds of counselors. Remember, a person who gives counsel or advice, an attorney, especially a trial lawyer, or a person who supervises young people. He's all three of those, isn't he? Is Jesus given authority in your life to give you counsel and advice? Yeah, he is the Word of God. Is Jesus like a trial lawyer in some regards? The Bible calls him your advocate. The accuser has been thrown out. The prosecuting attorney has been thrown out. Now you have an advocate, a defense counsel, before the Father. And it just so happens it's kind of a brother-in-law deal. You know why? Because your defense counsel happens to be the son of the judge. And they think just alike. In fact, he's willing to include you in the family. Not a bad deal, is it? I've I've been in uh, legal situations where there was nepotism involved. But it never went my way. <laughs> you know, if, if I was in a car accident where I didn't think I was at fault, and the policeman in Gross State, Louisiana, show, or maybe it was Grand Isle, shows up, he was never my uncle. He was always the uncle of someone else that was there. Well, this is a situation, this is a situation where your counselor's father is the judge, and he declares you to be a son. It's a pretty one-sided deal, isn't it? You, you might desire that if your life was on the line in court. Your life is on the line. It's just a different court. Okay, are y'all in John? Mm-hmm. In John 14, starting in verse 15. This is on page 1197, fourth book of the New Testament. It's only 1197 if you're in the Thompson chain. Pretty strong hint if you're not in the Thompson chain. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not a Bible salesman. Uh, all right. Uh, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Now, wait a minute. Jesus was a counselor, right? I mean, we said that. The Isaiah 9 that introduced him as the guy who had removed the burden from you the guy that would uh, carry the burden on himself and even the weight of the government, was called a wonderful counselor. Is is that not right? Mm -hmm. But now we're being told there's going to be another counselor. It's hard to make you think. If you already had an attorney on, on retainer, would you run out and get another attorney? No, you already have one on retainer. But let's just suppose for a moment you're wealthy and you have two different law firms on retainer. How foolish would it be to go out and get a third? You either need to quit paying somebody, you need to get rid of one and get another, right? Think about that from your Christian standpoint. You've been appointed one counselor, Jesus, the Word of God. You've been appointed a second counselor we're going to read about. The one who resides in you, he's called the Spirit of Truth. Be careful where you run for other counsel because that would be just like firing the other two firms in uh, search for a third. Does that make sense to you? See, God, He knows what you need. He knows what you need ahead of time. So He provided for you two counselors. The problem is they don't stand right face-to-face with you, eye-to-eye with you, and make you do what they say. In fact, most counselors won't do that. What do they give? What is the first uh, definition? A person who gives counsel and advisor. See, the Holy Spirit and Jesus were both very gentlemanlike. None of them said, you know... Uh, Matthew, you're going to do what I said now. You know, God has never grabbed you by the shoulders and forced you to do His will. Instead, He's told you what His will is. He's explained how it can be done. He's empowered you to do it, but He does not make you. A lot of times the reason that we seek something outside of the Word of God or the Spirit of God is because we seem to lack the strength. We lack the desire, the commitment to do what God's Word or His Spirit tells us to do. That's okay. I mean, it's true. That's, that's uh, a weakness of mankind. But the answer then is not to go outside of that and say, hey, would somebody else make me do what I need to do? 
You were created to be an independent human being for a reason, dependent on nobody except God. That's your free will is something that is given to you by a sovereign. The, our sovereign over the universe created sovereignty in you to see what you would do with it. We'll, we'll pick up that subject again in a minute. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. Now, I was at one time a part of a denominational church that didn't much care for that that particular uh, translation. He will be, he is with you, and he shall be in you. There was a turning point in human history, and is when the church, as we know it, began, and it was at the day of Pentecost. And what most people think about Pentecost is immediately of the term Pentecostal and of speaking in other tongues. Now that's great. I do that. I do that every day throughout the day. But that is not what this was about. This was about a counselor residing in you forever. Up and prior to the day of Pentecost, there had always been a counselor around you. The Holy Spirit, remember what he said in Paul's life, what, what Jesus said to Paul? When Paul was born again, what did, what did God tell Paul? Paul, Paul, why do, why do you persecute me? You kick against the goads. The Holy Spirit had been there in Paul's life around him, goading him, pricking him, trying to get him to go in the right direction. As he swayed off course from where God wanted his life to go, there were goads that caused him to go another direction. But there is something that happens differently in a Christian's life. The moment that, that Paul began to cry out to God, and the, the Bible says that somebody saw him receive the Holy Spirit, saw, so something had to happen, but that's a whole other uh, discussion. He was no longer just on the outside goading him. He became something that was in him. He, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is with you and shall be in you. As a Christian, you don't just have these counselors on retainer. You have them residing in the same space with you. You don't have to pick up the phone and call. You don't have to wait in line or schedule an appointment. The Holy Spirit is there always with you. Now, have you ever been in a... A lot of you haven't. I recently have had lots of legal experience through work that I don't, don't want. But have you ever been in a legal situation, had more than one counselor and they disagreed? Oh, what an ugly position to be in. One attorney says, I think you should do this. And the other attorney says, no, definitely not. Do this. And you think, okay, uh, how do I know what to do? A beautiful thing about these two counselors, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, you're going to find out one just reminds you of what the other said. They're in perfect unity, always. It's important because from the beginning of God's revelation to mankind, His revelation to the Jewish people, He always told you there had to be at least two that testified in every matter. So He did. He left you with two counselors that agree on everything. Uh, verse uh, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This And keep your finger there. There's one more verse we're going to read. This counselor is here to remind you of what the Word says. 
And we're going to find out later, He also empowers you to do what the Word says. It's, it's both. So that you're not left hearing the Word only, but can be a doer of the Word. One more thing that this was supposed to cause. Why do you have day camp counselors? The third definition of a counselor, one who supervises kids. Why, why are they there? They maintain control. And what do little kids do at day camp that is usually their first experience with it? They get homesick, don't they? Dude has never been away from home for three months before. If I send him off for three months, you think he'd miss us sometimes? So what does the day camp counselor do? Comforts him. This Holy Spirit is called a comforter as well. When Jesus was giving these words, He expected them to be comforting to His people. And because it was supposed to be comforting, listen to what He says in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The fact that He was a counselor and that He was providing another counselor was supposed to provide people with peace. When you see people that their lives are not going well, that they're not happy, and everybody puts on a facade to try to prevent others from seeing that. You know, you see the bumper sticker says, life is wonderful, people are terrific, or whatever it says. It's simply not true of everybody that has that bumper sticker, is it? People go through great uh, effort to wear the right makeup, to buy the right clothes, to have the right car, house in the right subdivision, to give everybody the appearance that everything's okay with me. A great preacher named David Ring, a guy who has cerebral palsy, preaches this message. He says, I'm not okay and you're not okay. And he starts off in a three-piece suit. And as he preaches, he takes off his jacket and you begin to see that there's stains on his T-shirt. And he preaches a little longer. He says, boy, it's hot in here. And he takes off the vest. And you see that there's holes in the shirt. He preaches a little longer and he undoes his pants. He's wearing boxers, of course. And you find out that there's stains and stuff all over the boxers. He ends up finishing this message in his boxers and an undershirt that are filthy and nasty. He said, I looked pretty good on the outside when we started. The Word of God has a way of peeling away your layers to show you where you really are. But it's not for the purpose of beating you down. It's for the purpose of receiving good counsel on how to change. This ministry is called life-changing ministries because I believe in one thing. Not that God is here to beat you over the head with a stick. Not that God is here to show you what a bad person you are. That God is here to transform you into His image. I don't care whether the church world likes it or accepts it. I don't care if they throw stones at you because we don't dress like they do. Or because you have a glass of wine. Or smoke a cigarette or whatever else it is. I believe that the power of God can change lives. And that it doesn't necessarily have to conform with the cookie cutter image that the denominational churches have given us. Do you know that Jesus never wore a suit in his life? You know, And if you dressed like Jesus in a church today, they would throw you out and think that you were a transvestite because it looked like a dress. Okay, We have imposed social norms upon God's life-changing power and it doesn't work that way. The point I wanted you to get from this other counselor is it was supposed to provide you with peace. If you don't have peace in your life, if you can't spend a calm moment without fear and worry, you need to do whatever it takes to obtain peace again. And that's found in the Word and in the counsel of the Holy Spirit. He said something right at the end, but I think he said it uh, more uh, bluntly in John 14.1. So turn there. John 14.1 says very simply this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in Me. Uh, I've read that for years without ever focusing on the way that it, it says that. He doesn't say uh, your heart shouldn't be troubled. He doesn't say uh, if you are troubled, come to Me. He said do not let, let, L-E-T, let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. That's implying that you, as Christians, have some control over whether or not your heart is troubled. Have you ever been down and didn't know why? Have you ever been really angry and, you know, you just couldn't not be angry when you thought about a certain situation? Our emotions were given to us, and God has them too. Some people are surprised to find out God's angry at times in the Bible, He's very loving and compassionate at other times. There are even a couple times in the Bible it looks as if God changed His mind based on something that He saw. 
It's strange. We're made in His image and we have emotions. But you know what we also have complete control over? Emotions. They're yours. They're given to you as a tool. And you have the ability to change them. Now, you also have complete ability and control over sin. But we don't always see that working correctly in our lives, do we? I mean, there are times that the good that I want to do is just not the good that I do. There are times my emotions don't reflect what I believe. And they don't line up properly. And that's okay. David found himself in that situation often. We're going to close when we close. I know you're getting excited that we close right now. When we close, we're going to close with some of the words of David. Because he took certain steps to bring his emotions into line with the will of God. This was the counselor's advice. People go pay lots and lots of money to have somebody tell them this stuff. And the Bible tells us for free. You'd pay even more money to have the counselor follow you around all day and say, now, that's destructive behavior. Do you remember the steps? We're going to go back to the beginning. You know, They pay money for that stuff. And God has given this to you and it wasn't free. The most precious price on earth was paid for it. The blood of an innocent man was shed so that you could have a, a counselor on retainer. A legal counselor, a comforting counselor, an emotional counselor, a lawyer, however you want to think about that. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. If you are troubled, according to John 14.1, what is the solution? Trust in God and trust in Jesus. You know, trust is an excellent English word that means faith. We use faith as a noun. We use faith all kind of ways. Have faith. Uh, even George Michael said you just got to have faith, right? Somehow I think his definition of it is different than mine. Faith is not something that you go buy at the store. Faith is not an intellectual uh, ideal that you hold an axiom to live by. Faith is best expressed in the word trust. If you are having problems and you feel troubled, you need to trust God. Well, what do you mean trust God? He's already provided you with two excellent means of counsel. Trust Him and begin to apply His advice. When you do that, the trouble begins to drive away. Now, as I began to think about this, I thought of my friends in, uh, in the Word of Faith movement. If I take the wrong approach to this, it's not much different than some have taken in the Word of Faith movement, where they say, oh, you're not supposed to be sick, just don't receive that. Not acknowledging that you're already sick. It's already landed. <laughs> because healing gifts work in the body, they act sometimes as if nobody should be sick. Now, that would kind of defeat the reason for having healing gifts in the body, but in any case, that's kind of the approach. And so that you could feel put down upon if you had a chest cold and you weren't instantly healed, like something was wrong with you, right? Well, the same thing could be true here. He said, well, Eric... I'm troubled. There are times I have anxiety. There are times that I have fear. Uh, does that make me lesser than? Does that, does that mean I'm out of the will of God? No, not at all. We're going to find out that what the Bible teaches is the prescription is to have trust in God and allow Him to help push it out of your life. We don't deny the existence that, uh, that this is there. We don't act as if there's never a day where we're down. We don't act as if there's never a problem that is vexing to us. Instead, we just know that there's a solution. That's expressed in these words. The Bible teaches us this. Perfect love drives out fear. It doesn't, perfect love doesn't deny the existence of fear. I'm not saying that there's never a time out there where you are worried about finances. Of course there are. You'd be insane if you weren't. But your perfect love for God, knowing that you're in His will and applying His, uh, His counsel, should drive that out. Did you know that the Bible says pursue righteousness? Pursue it? That's like a policeman pursuing a robber. Sometimes this stuff is just hard for us to get hold of, but you're supposed to chase it down. He didn't say pursue it for a little while. He didn't say pursue it till you catch it. He said pursue it. In other words, it's a lifelong pursuit. Some might call it the pursuit of happiness. I'm playing around with my words there. Y'all forgive me. I get bored every now and then. Turn with me to uh, John 15. Matthew, do you know what time we started here? Right at 11. Okay. Y'all bear with me for another 20 minutes. Okay. Oh, that's great. I love this computer edge. Y'all in John 15? Starting in verse 26. 
If I can find 26. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The second Counselor speaks about the first Counselor. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you. Why? So that you will not go astray. We have a natural tendency to not put into practice the very Word of God. So God has given us His Word and He gave us a counselor who resides in us to remind us of God's Word. Why? So that you will not go astray. Now, God's had a lot of practice with shepherding. I mean, an awful lot. His very first project on the earth, what did it do? This is Adam. He went astray. His very first nation that He bought for Himself, what did they do? They went astray. God knows that you have a propensity to stray from His advice. So he did something in this Pentecostal age that had not been done before. Prior to that, the Holy Spirit had been with people around them. Now he put his counselor in you so that you would not go astray because we have a natural tendency to do it. Now, if you find yourself astray, that doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It doesn't mean that you're beyond salvation or any of those things. It means you're a normal human being like every other and you need to be reminded of what the Word says and bring your life into conformity with it. That's, that's the Bible message in a nutshell. From here, if you will turn back to John, we're going to leave John with, with these words. In John 14, at least I kept all the chapters close by. You know, Sometimes when it's in here, it sounds like a fan was turned on with all the pages turning. We jump around so much. Back in John 14, starting verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. The words that He says are not His own. It is the Father in Him doing His work. If Christianity works properly, we acknowledge God uh, and the world sees that. But what they really should see is God working in you through your words and through your deeds. Listen to what Jesus says. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidences of the miracles themselves. I said, why on earth are you reading this? Not because I think all of you have performed beautiful miracles, although I'm sure you have. I'm reading you this because there's evidence that the Counselor is in you. There is evidence in your life. All you have to do is look in the rearview mirror a little bit and look at where He has brought you from to where you are now and you can see His counsel. In fact, there will be times when you look in the rearview mirror you can see you strayed from His counsel and it hurt. You can see times when you avoided danger by staying in His counsel. But all of these are evidences that He's in your life and that's given to you for the purpose of Trusting in Him and loving Him and letting that love drive out your fears. Anybody in here that is single, don't raise your hands for this. Everybody, when you were single, do you remember the fear that you would never have a godly mate? You remember that? You remember crying out or praying, Lord, I love you, but you know, if I don't go shop in all the places that people find mates, I'm going to be unmarried forever. I mean, I, I remember that, so I got married quick. No, I'm kidding. That's a normal fear. You, anybody that's ever had kids, do you remember when you first uh, found out you're pregnant? The fear that hits uh, a man at least right away is, how am I going to pay for this? I mean, very first thing. You, and you, you, you lie and you hide it and you say, oh no, baby, I'm thrilled. And you really are thrilled, but you're also this big yoke got saddled right on your shoulder and you're thinking, how am I going to pay for this? Your perfect love for the Father and hearing His counsel drives away that fear in both cases, knowing that He has good things in store for you. And that just like a father wants to give his son good things, God wants to give you good things. In fact, Luke 11.13 says this is why He gave you the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, the Holy Spirit is supposed to remind you that He wants to give you good things. The first good thing He gave you. Um, if you can't believe anything else, believe the evidences in your own life. 
Turn with me to the book of Psalms now. I want you to see how some of this worked in David's life. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. We're going to be in the 25th Psalm. In the 25th Psalm, you begin it with these words. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, and you I trust. O my God, do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. What were those first few words? To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You remember Jesus said, Do not let your heart be troubled. Now here, David, who is troubled, there's no question he's troubled, and he's troubled because there were some times he didn't listen to God's counsel. He's troubled, though. He says, Oh, Lord, I lift up my soul. I, I had this experience when I was um, born again, maybe about six months. I was burdened and overwhelmed with the thought that my marriage might not work. And it was not because we were not doing well. We really actually were doing well. But everybody around me seemed to think we were way too young to be married, that we didn't have the finances, all of those things. And that burdened me. I mean, it, I mean, this particular day, it just beat me into the dirt. And I was having some problems with a car, the only car I had to get to work, and I'd been working on it late, late, late into the evening. Now it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and to make matters worse, I get up at 4.15, and I couldn't go to sleep, and it's 2 o'clock. And I'm sitting there, and I started to pray. And... I had this idea because the Bible teaches about the oil of joy. He's given you the oil of joy. He's exchanged your uh, mourning for gladness, ashes for beauty, all of these things. I started to think about it and I said, Lord, pour your oil of joy on me. And uh, oil of joy is often synonymous with the Holy Spirit, but I, I, wasn't, I, I was a newbie. Y'all forgive me. And I, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, give me your oil of joy. I'm down and I, I need your help. And a switch turned in my mind. It's the first time I ever realized, wait a minute, I have the authority to make myself happy. It's okay for me to do it. I was waiting for an outside force to reach in and change something in me. And instead, I just decided to be happy. And you know what? As I started to laugh and jump around like a little kid, before long, I was happy. And something changed in me at that moment. It was not all that unlike those of you that have experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. People are praying, Lord, I uh, want your baptism in the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you've been in a Pentecostal or charismatic setting before, they believe that it's uh, evidenced in speaking in other tongues, as do I. So, Lord, I want your baptism in the Holy Spirit and I want to speak in other tongues. And they're waiting for God to reach down from heaven and move their mouth. But those of you that have experienced this know you have to begin to speak. And then he adds words. And that's very scriptural. And we'll teach on that another time. Here's the thing. It's no different with joy. It's no different. When you're praying for joy, when you're praying for control, God does not reach down and snap His fingers and say, David, you are happy. God gives David the power to make David happy himself. Even the world has tapped into this. This is why you hear people say, I chose to stop smoking, or I chose to whatever it was, and that's a big thing. Uh, they're acting each day. I woke up and I chose to be happy. Well, we only have that authority because God has given it to us. But even the lost have realized we have that authority. It's us who were still waiting for some supernatural third party to reach down into us and change it. You have the power. Now, charismatics have no problem with this. If I teach you. Uh, Jesus has already given you the power to cast out demons. He doesn't do it. You need to do it. Oh, charismatics everywhere. Go, oh, yeah, that's right. We have authority in the name of Jesus. Believers authority in the name of Christ. But if I say you have the authority to be happy, be happy. God's got to bring a change in my circumstances. No, He doesn't. And it's, it's really no different. They say, uh, no, I won't tell a bad joke. So I'll go ahead and tell one. we got a light bulb out in here, you know. They say in the... How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? You know, I say it takes ten. One to screw it in and nine to rebuke the spirit of darkness. You know, see, I knew one, one thought it was funny. Uh, you could do that with all of them. You know, you can do it with the Baptist church. You have one to perform the work and nine to form the committee. You know, the, it, it works everywhere. 
Okay, Psalm 25 says, uh, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust. Isn't it interesting that every time we talk about being of good cheer, every time we talk about not being troubled or a soul being lifted up, the word trust seems to enter in? And this is because in its very root, at the core of disgruntled feelings, of despondency, of uh, the mully grubs, whatever you want to call them, there is a lack of trust in God. That, that's it. In, in, in its very core, if you're worried about finances, it's because you don't believe God's going to come through for your finances. If you're worried about your relationship with your spouse, it's because you don't have faith that God can bring about change if you're not in control of it. If you're worried about some area of your life, it's because you don't really think that God has control of that area. And so in its core, it's a lack of trust. Now, I'm not throwing stones at you for that. I have lots of these. And I'm like that guy in Mark. I'm saying, hey, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And you know what? He does. And His mercy triumphs over judgment. He doesn't throw me away because I have this lack of trust. He does things to help encourage my trust so that I know that He's trustworthy. I know it up here. It's getting it into practice in my life. When you were Christians, don't you, or when you were first born again, don't you remember the feeling, if I do that, everybody's going to think I'm crazy. And all of those insecurities, but you reasoned in your heart that He was worth, worth it, you counted the cost and you started to follow Him trusting that His way was better, you just don't ever stop trusting. You know, He builds it and you keep going with it. Okay, so He said, uh, Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will put to shame uh, those who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God are my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome. I apologize for the abrupt ending to the message. Unfortunately, our recording equipment malfunctioned in the last 15 minutes of the message, and it left us with an abrupt ending. Uh, immediately after this, you'll hear the closing that is pre-recorded on our CDs. And again, I apologize that the message was truncated.